and welcome to Panorama. I am your only host today on today's show, Dan Torres here, and I have a very special guest from Greenfield. I have the chair of the Human Rights Commission, Daniel Cantor Yalowitz. Thanks for coming on Panorama. I've been meaning to talk to you about Greenfield and what is going on in Green. Kind of a, a difficult time, right? Tell me a little bit about why does the Greenfield Human Rights Commission exist? What makes Greenfield special? All right. Well, thanks, Dan. It's, it's great to be here with you. Uh, we just had elections uh, last month. Uh, well, this month, actually, in earlier July, and I was elected for a second year of to be the chair of the commission. We, uh, I think we've been around since the uh, mid to late 1990s. It's, uh, it's in the city charter, city of Greenfield. And while there are, I believe, maybe 170 uh, different cities and towns in, in uh, Massachusetts. I could be wrong on that number. There are only maybe a dozen or so uh, cities that have chartered human rights commissions. There are other towns and cities that have groups and other things that are unofficial and not part of the city government. Uh, but Greenfield has it baked into its charter. We exist under the supervision of the mayor of Greenfield. Right now, our charter calls for a maximum number of nine voting members of the commission. What makes it special? Well, I think the fact that it has one, and, uh, you know, as I said, there's only a handful or so, a couple of handfuls across the, ma uh, the state of Massachusetts. That in itself is special. Um, but the opportunity to serve a, a city organization and also to be able to create our own mission and vision, uh, which we've just redone this past year, gives us an opportunity to work closely, not only within the government, but also for the citizens and residents of, of the city. And we're hoping to build a stronger and more functional and activist group as we attract and retain new members and move forward with, uh, with our mission and vision and engage with the city uh, in as many directions as we can find useful and necessary uh, and also based on the interests of our various commissioners. That's great. Did you say the mayor appoints uh, the members to this commission? And tell me a little bit about the colleagues that you work with. I mean, what do they do? Are they all lawyers? <laughs> Far from it. In fact, I don't think we have any lawyers. These are folks who live in Greenfield. That's one of the few criteria. They come from all walks of life. Several folks are retired, but they come from various careers. We have folks who've been in education. Myself, I'm an intercultural developmental psychologist. Uh, we have folks who have been working in various areas, working with children, av children's advocacy, and various other commissions, both as volunteers and as staff. There's one thing that unites us is that we each come from uh, different kinds of uh, fields of work. You know, we're, we're seeking to find common ground, which is not to say agreement on all the issues, but uh, common ground in terms of why we do the work we do and, uh, and how we proceed forward. To that end, we just this past year created our first onboarding booklet of about 20 pages. We are very important. Very important. And I think we're the only uh, commission or committee in the city that has gone ahead and done that. So that when we bring new members on, which we do almost every year, we have a, a pretty thorough onboarding procedure, a document, see, is a, a, both a, a living document and a training manual. It gives us uh, guidelines to work with, allows us both the, the clarity and the consistency so going forward we can address issues that are of particular interest both within our commission and also in the city and have a framework for how we operate. Yeah, if I lived in Greenfield and I wanted to get on the commission, who do I mm -hmm. go to? Do I go to the commissioner or go, do I go to the mayor? 
Or how does that work? Right. Well, you know, actually, it's timely that you would ask because we are, we do have a couple of open uh, vacant spaces at this point, and we are looking for a, a lot more diversity in our commission than we currently have. I, I hope your listeners will take that into consideration. We would like to look like Greenfield looks like, but we don't currently. We currently have one uh, member, a person of color, and then everyone else is white. So that's just one level of uh, diversity and inclusion and so on. And we'd like to touch many more. But people go directly uh, via a letter of interest that is sent directly to the mayor, along with uh, a resume or a CV. She really is the, in a sense, the, the deciding uh, force. Although she takes uh, the resumes and so on that comes in, she and I have had several discussions. I think my input is considered that the decision is hers, and then she then forwards the names uh, of candidates that she would like to appoint to the city council, and then the city council votes. Oh, okay. so, they, they also have a, they also a role. Have to say. Right. But my role and the, the, the role of the commission writ large is really to talk it up and speak it up and talk to folks and, and see where there's interest and, and how we might be able to, you know, enhance our diversity and so on and share that with, with the mayor directly. I want clarification. So let's just say I did live in Greenfield. You thought I was great. I had a great resume and I went through the process and let's just say I got on. Tell me how many hours per week or per month does the Greenfield Human Rights Commission uh, ask of me? And I had one other question. Are your meetings recorded by Greenfield uh, Public Access Television? We typically meet once a month for two hours and uh, typically it's the second Monday of the month in the evening, uh, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Of course, that can change and does change if it's a national uh, holiday, such as Indigenous Peoples Day and, and so on. And then we make alternative arrangements. Because of COVID, we have been meeting uh, virtually. Uh, that has shifted from one platform called WebEx to another, which people know as more popularly as Zoom. We would like to meet in person, but at this point, given the concerns around uh, COVID, and it seems to be easier to, to be able to meet by Zoom. And the public is invited to all of our meetings. Per open meeting laws in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, we announce our meeting and our agenda uh, on the city website a minimum of 48 hours before the meeting so that anyone who wants to find out about it and find out about it can get the link to join. So we encourage people to be part of us. We uh, try to be as transparent as possible in our communication. As far as the work commitment, uh, it is the two-hour meeting. What we have found over the past year or so is that in order to get work done, more work done in a timely manner, we occasionally move subcommittees on an ad hoc basis, which can can look into particular issues, do research on them, Sometimes they meet in between our regularly scheduled full commission meetings. Uh, And again, those are open. The subcommittee meetings are open. They're also published. Minutes are also available of those subcommittee meetings as they are for the full commission meetings. That sometimes adds a couple more hours a month. Generally, I would say, to be safe, there is a two-hour monthly meeting, and there may be additional work, phone calls, or just doing a little bit of research, particular topic, or taking some time to get an event set up. That might bring it up to maybe four, five hours a month. If someone is living in Greenfield and feels like their human rights have been violated, what, where do they go? Who do they talk to? And uh, can they lodge a complaint against businesses and public officials, or is it only public officials? Well, let me go back to something yeah. that I missed, and then I'll, go, I'll come to that question. 
you would ask if our meetings are recorded. Oh, yes. So actually, one of our members or one of our new commissioners is also working on the staff of GCTV. And so we now have access to having those meetings recorded. If anyone wants to record a meeting, if they're showing up as a, as a guest or a participant, they only have to notify me as the chair at the beginning of the meeting so that everyone is aware that the meeting is being recorded. Typically, the way we have done that, other than visual or audio recording, is simply uh, through the minutes that are published. And um, our clerk takes excellent minutes, and uh, we vote on those on a timely basis, and then they're part of our archive. And so anyone can look up the minutes of any meeting, you know, as the city council and perhaps even the school committee have considered uh, recently, uh, we would uh, be very open to having the meetings recorded. There's no reason not to be fully transparent. But I just wanted to to, clean, to clarify that. Uh, as far as if someone believes that their rights have been violated, a couple of responses to that. One is that we have a form. I think they call it a complaint form. Sometimes makes it more negative, but it's a, a, a concern form or triggering form that they can fill out either uh, in writing or on online, and it comes to our, our particular website and, and uh, mailbox that we can uh, uh, look at. As far as who can complain, what's, what's perhaps unique, and I can't speak to this across the state, is that if it's a personnel issue, if someone is lodging a complaint against the city official, it does not go to us. Okay. Is, such as if, if someone has a complaint about a, a police uh, policeman or a policewoman or someone in the fire uh, department or, or whatever, that does not come to us. That, that would go directly to the mayor. She would then have to make a decision where that goes because that's considered uh, confidential personnel information. Mm. And, uh, many of the unions and so on require that as well. So if it's, if it's something that someone is concerned about, feels they've been wronged in any which way by either a, a business or another citizen resident of Greenfield, then that can come to us. And we do a, take on a process of investigation. Uh, we name a subcommittee of three members of the commission to undertake an investigation and research and report in a timely manner, both to the full commission and also to the individual lodging the complaint or concern. That's kind of the way we work. We haven't seen a lot of that in the past, uh, over the past year, when we uh, officially published the complaint form, so to speak. I, I do feel that in terms of doing that work, we do want your audience as well as all citizens and residents of Greenfield to know that that's available and that that is a critical but not exclusive aspect of our work. Great. Uh, and, yeah. and they can go on the website to get that form if they ever have. They can it. go on the website. I also believe that um, forms are in City Hall. I don't know exactly where, but, for example, if someone doesn't have a computer, we don't want their complaint to be invalidated because right. they don't have a way of making that complaint. So I believe, and I'll have to double-check on this, for again, for your audience and you know for everyone in Greenfield, where the paper forms are kept as well. Okay. Well, we're yeah. talking with Daniel Cantor Yalowitz here, the chair of the Greenfield Human Rights Commission. There's been a lot written about the police department, the mayor, and I, and I want to ask you, as the chair of the Human Rights Commission, what role do you have 
as this political dispute happens? It's a, it's a very good question, and it's a complex one to respond to, in part because this the current litigation is ongoing, as, as you may know, with the city and the, uh, I guess, I don't want to call him the former police commissioner, but the one who is, uh, is now on paid professional leave, and the mayor. Our role has really not evolved in the same way as it might have if this were not in litigation currently. There are civil rights issues that are embedded in, in what's happened, but because it's, as I said, because it's in litigation, there's not a lot we can say until decisions are made and finalized. It, it did come up at a meeting that we held, I believe, in May, and to date, I think that that was one of the better attended meetings. We had close to 40 people, and uh, we had to we had to clarify and amplify on the fact that we are not a decision-making body. We wanted to give people an opportunity to share what's on their mind. We think that that's very important uh, in this kind of a situation and don't know where else that opportunity existed. Mm-hmm. But as far as having an official opinion or perspective, that's not something that we're able to take at this time. Mm-hmm. But we, we did feel that it was important back in May when the information was first coming forward publicly from the the case that was uh, adjudicated, that uh, it was important for the citizens of Greenfield to be able to talk about it in a public forum. And so that's how we proceeded. Mm. And and since we're talking about uh, Greenfield and the police department, I'd like some clarification based on an article that I read in, I believe, the Daily Hampshire Gazette a few weeks ago. Uh, that said that the Human Rights Commission had taken a position of asking the Greenfield uh, police chief to resign. And I'd just like to give you the opportunity to to clarify that, to respond to that. Uh, Have you asked him to step down? And, uh, And also I would like to know, what is the Human Rights Commission's position on these topics that are being discussed about defunding or abolishing the police department? Do you have an official position? I, I, what I want to say about that is that our members may have personal positions, mm. uh, but as a standing organization, a unit within the city government, it is not our purview to be able to articulate an official position. Okay. And at the same time, I do want to clarify that that article that came out uh, was in error, and I did point this out to the editor-in-chief of the newspaper, because that's not what was said in the meeting, and the minutes of the meeting will reflect that. And uh, I wish they had published a public retraction, uh, because we did not ask for the police chief to resign. But we did feel at the time, especially while the litigation at that point had ended, we didn't know that it was going uh, to appeal or to wherever it is at this point, that uh, to have him serve as the titular leader of the police department uh, with all that was coming up, would be in um, would would not be appropriate. So we actually suggested that uh, he come off uh, the position of chief of police at that point, but not that he resign or not that he be asked to resign. Okay. So I, I do want to point out that I wish that the paper had owned up to its mistake, but I hope that that clarifies uh, the perspective that we 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 held. And, of course, people in the community were all over the place with that, mm. uh, as you know. Right. Uh, and, uh, but, again, because it's a personnel issue and because it's, uh, you know, there are unions involved and whatnot, 
it, it wouldn't be appropriate for us to come forward. It would just simply complicate the situation. Right. right. And anyone speaking while it's in litigation, uh, no matter what their role, including the mayor, it, 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 we would say that that's uh, inappropriate. Right. Uh, let 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 it play its course. Uh, let a final decision uh, come forward, and then people can say what they want to say because all the facts have been aired out. But until that's done, we don't know what we don't know. Right. Just so the listeners understand from from my reading uh, of what's happening in Greenfield, mainly and the Daily Hampshire Gazette, is there was a conviction conviction. Uh, mm-hmm in favor of the one African-American police officer, discrimination, awarded uh, what I've seen is a figure of 400000 that got elevated to a million dollars when you add in all the additional uh, court-related fees. But the uh, city of Greenfield, or at least the, the insurance company that would pay out that payment, got to decide that they want to appeal. They decided to appeal, and I guess we're in the process of waiting for that appeal to be adjudicated in the courts. Do I have that, broadly speaking, correct? I think you do. I think you do. I can't speak to direct numbers, although I've heard that bandied about as well, that that $1 million. And I think people should understand that, at least from my understanding, it fell to the insurance company to, because they would be on line for that money. Right. Uh, the insurance company that insures the city of Greenfield, uh, I believe that they were the ones who had to initiate and instigate the appeal uh, because it's their money that's on the line. Of course, Greenfield pays insurance, but it would be the insurance company that would pay out if, in fact, the racial animus that, that yeah. was found in the first, in the first finding uh, is forwarded in, in the appeals process. Right. I actually want to step back a little bit from from this uh, conversation about Officer Buchanan, I believe that's his name, and Mm -hmm. the court case. Just stop back and and to reflect on the larger picture of what's happening in Greenfield. Uh, I want to uh, better understand from you, uh, either as an individual or as the chair of the Human Rights Commission, where do we find Greenfield's politics today? You know, and to me, it's an interesting conversation to have because... Greenfield isn't a very large city. It is, like you've noted, uh, it is a pretty white city. There is some diversity, but it's in rural Massachusetts. And I'm curious to know, how is the politics of all of this playing out? I mean, there's a larger conversation about police reform, police defunding, and, and the police department has had their budget cut by a few hundred thousand dollars. I forgot the exact figure. And so there's now a, a well, there were, initially the police department said there were going to be eight officers that were going to be laid off and or seven, and then now it's gone down to four. There's been some individuals in Greenfield who want to support the police department. Can you talk a little bit about what you see as the broader uh, political uh, factors happening right now in Greenfield? You know, it's a microcosm of what's going on in the United States, and you know, on a very small level. I believe that our census is somewhere around 19,000 people. I could be off by something. I haven't really looked at the final figures if they're available for 2020. But it used to be the town of Greenfield. Now it's the city of Greenfield. And I think that the, the challenge here is that the, the, the racial composition has, has shifted over time, certainly. It's a, a strong majority of uh, white folks, for sure. But there is diversity, and, uh, you know, in, in pockets around the different neighborhoods of Greenfield, 
And you know, this is why. And when I, you say just a clarification, when you say diversity here, you mean there's a large political diversity as well, right? That's yeah, is that what you're referring to? Yes, there's that, and there's there's more uh, increasing racial diversity and right. ethnic diversity, and I should also say even socioeconomic class diversity. So, in the ways that are typical, uh, perhaps larger cities and larger towns, I think Greenfield represents kind of a a multiplistic de- demographic more so than many of the other small towns that compose uh, Western Massachusetts, because it is a county seat and because many people have moved up over the years from the more expensive towns of Amherst and Northampton and so on. You know, Greenfield is not at that price point in terms of its, uh, you know, homes for sale and so on, although the taxes are high in Greenfield, which mm-hmm. is a separate problem, separate but connected. You know, we, the, 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 there is a changing face to what Greenfield looks like. Mm. You know, we'd like to see that reflected, of course, in all city commissions and and committees. But there's a there's a challenge there in that you know many people can't afford to take the time, even though I said it's an average for our commission of four to five hours a month. Many people are in a hard way uh, financially to ask them to be able to volunteer freely four or five hours a month, sometimes more with events and whatnot. Uh, without any compensation is difficult. And I know the city of Northampton is exploring that. One of its uh, subcommittees is looking at how do you diversify commissions and committees given that there is no stipend and no funding. Right. I don't know what answer they'll come up with. I'll be very curious to look in on that as it moves forward. But I don't know, and certainly for Greenfield, because it's not nearly as wealthy a city as, as Northampton, uh, what could be done about that? But right. I, if something could, I think that would be wonderful because then we'd be open to having folks who are just not retired or wealthy serving on these different uh, units uh, of the city government. Right. Right. Which obviously means that some voices get elevated more than others. Those who have the free time, those who are retired, those who tend to be more affluent, like you mentioned, certainly get more time. Well, we're, we're talking here with Daniel Cantor Yalowitz, uh, the chair of the Human Rights Commission of Greenfield. And I got to ask him the big question that's been on my mind because I think about it all the time. So the Human Rights Commission is there to promote equity in all of its different facets. At the same time, part of human rights is protecting free speech, the free expression of ideas. How does the Human Rights Commission balance the interests of greater racial equity, greater social equity, and an individual's right to attack that racial equity or that social equity. And, and here I'm thinking about, well, if somebody buys a sign that is offensive to somebody else or somebody buys an object that somebody finds offensive, right? It, it could be so many things. How does the Human Rights Commission navigate that complexity today? Well, you, you're right on the money with that. I mean, that's a, that's a very complex uh, question, and it's both situational, it's circumstantial, and it's also existential. I mean, you know, people do have right of free speech, and they behave as long as they don't harm themselves or other people. Mm. But that, that's, that's, that in itself is open to definition and redefinition. What does it mean to cause harm? And right. here, you know, we all know that several years ago, um, one of the current uh, uh, members of the police uh, um, department uh, uh, had a um, 
uh, I believe it was the uh, the flag uh, of the con- uh, yeah the Confederate uh, battle Confed- flag yeah yeah and uh, you know we that the the, the uh, Human Rights Commission as constituted then did weigh in heavily. I was not part of it then, and I wasn't active in in uh, city politics or government in any sense. But people who've been around would know that that was certainly um, a feature item in many meetings and newspaper articles in my turns and, and so on, letters to the editor. So it, it, there is a, I, I don't know if it's a thin line, but it's, it's, um, it's tricky because there is the right of free speech, but there's also the balance, which is uh, human rights. And, and I think you're absolutely right to point that out. And we uh, have to uphold, of course, the letter of law. Uh, that's, again, not in our purview, so to say, so to speak, um, the legal. But the ethical um, aspects of that have to do with when someone feels like their rights, have been, their human rights have been abused or negated or ignored. We have to work on the basis of a complaint. Uh, you know, it can't be hearsay. It can't be second or third person. Mm-hmm. It has to be someone uh, feeling like they can speak up. And, and, and again, we know, given the history of racism in this country, and even within Greenfield in the past, that many people do feel disenfranchised and voiceless and so on. And even if they could, the question is, would they? Uh, but we, that we put out in our mission statement and our vision statement uh, the sense that we, we feel it's very important to educate the community about what those rights are, and to find ways to support people to speak up, and uh, when when possible to protect that speech. Now, <laughs> there's not much we can do in terms of things like gun control and and so on. That's for other organizations and so on. Uh, although you know, as a as a public body, uh, we have to take those complaints seriously, and we have to investigate and explore. And then uh, in terms of whatever findings, we would, we would pass findings on to the mayor and her office, uh, in this case, uh, and the city council, who have authority and responsibility to uphold both the letter and the spirit of the law. We are more of an exploratory commission. Uh, we want people to know that we're out there and that we will do what we can to make sure that people's rights don't get trampled on, and if they do feel trampled on, then we have to, as I said, uh, not to be redundant, we have to take the responsibility and be accountable for what we can learn and pass that information on. Perhaps the mo- one of the most important things we can do. Um, but we want to take a much more active role in um, offering educational panels and programs and so on to the city at large. For example, just, uh, I don't know, maybe about Six or seven weeks ago, we held a panel on uh, what we called uh, the nature gap, which has to do with environmental justice or environmental injustice. And one of our newer members took on uh, the responsibility, not as a member of the commission, but as a member of the city, as a citizen, to put together a Juneteenth uh, event uh, that was very, very uh, well reviewed. And we hope that that will become a regular event that the city can take more responsibility uh, both fiscally and uh, programmatically to be involved in. Uh, but there's a lot that's on our docket in terms of how we would like to come forward and bring together speakers and the community and so on 
to talk about human rights because it's one of these very vague but always present issues that we have to live with. Yeah. And we, can, we believe we can do a much better and more assertive and more aggressive job in bringing these issues out to the community so that people become more aware and hopefully more sensitized to how we show up in person and in public yeah. and what's okay and what's not okay uh, to do, but that's where you get into interpretation and and more ethics rather than you know the legal security of what the law says. Right? I, is it okay to put a swastika on a lawn uh, or something to that uh, to that of that nature? You know, we have to look at both sides of it. It's uncomfortable because we may have very very strong personal feelings about that, but we have to take what uh, what the community has to say in it seriously. And we also have to look at our charter and look at our responsibilities and be sure that we're living up to them and not right. overstepping them. Right. And there's a danger in that because Matt's Open Meeting Laws, the OMLs, are very specific in terms of what we can and can't do and the timing of it. You know, we, we don't want to invalidate our good works by uh, running amok. Daniel, I, I wanted to give you a scenario and I want you to tell me how the Human Rights Commission um you think should, would handle it. And I'm thinking here about mobility access, right? Mm -hmm. if, I, if, if I had an impediment to mobility and I was walking downtown Greenfield and I wanted to file a complaint because let's just say the sidewalks or the building was not accessible to me. And I send that to the Greenfield Human Rights Commission. You said that there'd be a subcommittee that would investigate it, get back a report. What happens at the end? It, does after a finding is, is, is brought about, and let's just say, the finding had merit. Do you, are you able to bring this up to the mayor's office, to the budget office, and say, hey, this building and these sidewalks need to be repaired because it is impeding mobility? Tell me about that. It's, it's a good point, and many people will point to the current library as one where there were mobility concerns and considerations, you know, in terms of the staircases and, and, and stairwells and whatnot. And, you know... <laughs> They're ADA, and there's many, many laws around this and such. And I believe that there's also a d disability commission in Greenfield that it more specifically looks at that. But if it came to us, we would, we would be obligated to, to look at the situation. One of the actions we could take is to direct information, uh, our information, our findings, and the complaint as well to the disability commission in that regard, because they have more specific direct responsibility around the mechanics uh, disability awareness than, than we do. Um, but to, to the point that if you brought a complaint forward, uh, as long as it's not against, you know, a city employee, as I said, that has to go elsewhere, we would have to do our homework on this and we would have to figure out through our investigation where information goes to the mayor. It goes to the mayor's office with a recommendation from us or a series of recommendations, follow-up. But the actual, the, the actions uh, are not ours to make in terms of decisions around budget, personnel, uh, and work. Recommendations, yes. And I would hope that we can be more active. But again, we, we can't necessarily make specific recommendations unless there's a trigger for that. Right. That involves some, some legal language that, that would have to exist in order to give you the sort of legal purview to, to create changes in the laws that might, that might see a change in actuality, right? Well, yeah, we're not a legislative body. So right. my sense is that that would go first and foremost to the city, city council. council. You know, then it would be for them and the mayor to work through in, in some way. 
But, uh, you know, I've heard from members of the city council that they would like to be working more closely with the Human Rights Commission. Great idea. Not sure what that means yet. Uh, <laughs> but, but More hours, that's what that means. <laughs> but, well, yes, possibly. And, and uh, I've been going to many of their meetings, as have other members of the commission. Uh, and I've also been going to school committee meetings as well, because I think that, you know, we are one city. You know, we, if we want to protect the rights of, of people, no matter what identities they have, uh, then we have, there has to be more concerted collaboration. And I don't know exactly what that looks like. I have pitched to the mayor that I'd like to see the chairs of committees and commissions meet on a regular basis so that we can inform each other as to what's going on and uh, work more closely in terms of shared information and transparency. Um, I hope that will come about uh, in this next year. Again, it's a recommendation, but, you know, where we hear from different, uh, different units of, of city government that they care about what we are doing and we care about what they're doing, it makes sense to see to what extent can that be formalized. I, I'm not advocating for anything in particular other than greater communication, greater expression of and sharing of resources uh, and counsel greater sense of overall support for the citizens and the workers and the residents of Greenfield. I think we could do far better, and I think we could be far more responsive to the, the issues that come up, um, both on a regular basis and an ad hoc basis. I think we want to take a, a more active role in talking about affordable housing, for example. Yeah, we're going to touch on that, Daniel. Uh, uh-huh. We're talking okay. to Daniel Cantor Yalowitz here, the chair of the Greenfield Human Rights Commission on Panorama. I'm your host, Dan Torres. I wanted, we've been talking a lot about the, the work the Human Rights Commission is doing involving race, class. So I want to bring up some of the social issues that are going on in Greenfield, and specifically housing. Uh, Daniel, I, I'm going to have to say, I've talked to a lot of politicians here. I've talked to a lot of people running even for state office here in the radio. And there's one common theme connecting all of them. It comes back to one issue. And it is affordable housing. This isn't even even a question now of, you know, subsidized housing, which we can say, yes, we have a lack of, but we just have a lack of affordable housing for not only low income individuals, but medium earning individuals. How does the Human Rights Commission tackle something so big as housing that I feel and connects to so many other social issues that are happening around Greenfield, from the opiate crisis to economic mobility to economic development? Talk about housing a little bit. This has been something that, you know, as, as, I, as you said, I'm not going to say that people have been giving lip service to, but it continues to be anathema. I, we, uh, we don't have sufficient housing uh, at, at, the, at many levels. You know, when, when new units are being put up and built, I wonder how much consideration is really given to affordable housing and equal, equal rights to housing and so on. It's, it's not there. It's, it's something that, as you said, many politicians and there are many organizations that are working on housing in Greenfield. But I'm not even sure I understand exactly what that means to be working on housing. Right. <laughs> sounds right, but it, it also sounds very vacuous to me. And this is, this is not meant as a, as a verbal uh, or punishment to folks who are really concerned but I, I don't know how we can affect the, the, the procurement of more housing at affordable levels in a city that really struggles uh, and, and does not have the wealth of many other towns uh, in, in cities and in right. 
the Commonwealth and even in the western part of the state. To talk about it is, is good, but I think at a certain point, we need to see more act. You know, again, the, our primary role, again, as the Human Rights Commission, is, have it, is for, the, for the promotion of dialogue and education uh, around these issues and to get speakers in front of people, so, you know, who are experts or who are deeply involved uh, professionally and, and even philosophically in working with these issues and having the community have the opportunity to speak with them directly. Uh, what, what's their stance? How are they handling this? Where are they going? Uh, where, are the, where are the grants that we need to, you know, develop properties? And, uh, you know, we've heard a lot lately about the procurement of marijuana uh, facilities in, in town and all over Massachusetts. But where are those that want to build, you know, middle-class and affordable housing? Right. And where are the grants? And my hope would be is that we can have some hard-hitting sessions over the next year, people can ask the questions directly to those who are responsible for making decisions. You know, you've heard of people voting with their wallet. They can also vote with their vote. Uh, we would like to really see plans made and, and put forward. If we can build in the last three or four or five years a new high school, a new uh, justice uh, building, uh, a new library, uh, I'm not even sure what else, but these are major big-ticket items. You know, what about finding some money to build units? You know, and again, we, we want to lean in on that from the educational and dialogic perspective. Mm -hmm. Try to push folks to move beyond words on, on this topic. Words have really not done much so far, except to exhaust people. And uh, at this point, we want to see, uh, you know, active planning going on. You know, we can put up a library in two years and a high school in two years and float bonds and, and, and so on. But, but what about where people live? And, and that's everything to do with the kind of community we are, the way we see ourselves, and even more importantly, the way others see us. And, Part of what you're saying also connects back to the amount of money Greenfield would have to invest and create the incentives to build housing in Greenfield to increase the stock also connects back to the local economy of Greenfield. I think you were touching on that or alluding to it a little bit. And I'm curious to know what you think the economic viability is of Greenfield. Do you, do you see commerce businesses moving in? Is there the sort of a proactive engagement? And the reason I bring that up is Usually that's a, that's a sign that economic growth is happening in Greenfield. There's more tax revenue available to the city of Greenfield. They'll be able to invest that money in, in the needs of the community. And I'm curious to know what you uh, see as living in Greenfield, and, and I don't. Right. Well, you know, as a, as a Greenfielder, I just need to take the 10-minute walk downtown to see how many vacant uh, storefronts there are. Uh, and I think... <laughs> I, there's more now than I can remember, say, three, five, seven, ten years ago. I've only been in Greenfield now for 17 years, so I'm a relative newcomer. <laughs> but, compared to others who've been here for several generations. Generations, yeah. Uh, but but the, 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 the problem is when you, when you see that, and, and now with the, um, the, the GCC building, the downtown center up for sale, which is, uh, you know, and Wilson's having gone out of business and, and so on, you see, you see emptiness. And, uh, you know, this isn't necessarily for lack of trying, but my understanding is one of the drawbacks is that the, the tax base, the tax rate is very high. Mm. And, uh, you know, 
I don't know what to say or do about that, but that in itself is a problem because that inhibits people from coming in and taking over a storefront and making more of it and, and generating their own income and, and building employment and, and whatnot. I mean, that's really the infrastructure needs that. Right. But we have, for whatever reasons that I don't fully understand, um, we seem to be treading water or even maybe losing a step here and there. And every time a, a storefront or a restaurant or whatever closes down, it's a big hurt because we know it's going to be a, a matter of not months, but years. Now, truly, uh, COVID hasn't helped. I mean, that right. has set back several years, and we need to consider that. And that's part of a much bigger puzzle. That's not just Greenfield. But even before that, there were numerous storefronts that, that were vacant. And uh, I do think that this is, again, beyond the purview of the Human Rights Commission, but as a citizen, I feel like um, I would like to be more involved in what can be done, mm-hmm. uh, especially with all these wonderful new facilities uh, come, popping up and the library being the newest of them. Yeah. Uh, you know, what does it look like to have a brand new library and then 15 vacant stores? Right. Uh, yeah. So... Um, there's so, some challenges for Mayor Wiedergardner. Uh, Dan, Daniel Cantor, Yalowitz, chair of the Human Rights Commission. We've been talking all things Human Rights Commission, but you're also an author. And I want you to talk about a little bit about that. You, you've published a book recently. Can you talk a little bit about your personal life and, and your work you do? Well, thanks for asking, uh, Dan. Um, I, as I said earlier, I'm a psychologist by training. And when COVID first hit, I had been uh, doing some teaching in China uh, myself back in December of, of 2019, uh, just before we began to hear about uh, COVID coming out of China, in Wuhan in particular. And I, uh, in my training, I was concerned, not primarily, but very deeply about the, the social and the mental and the emotional health and the toll that even early on uh, COVID was taking. And uh, so I took it upon myself to write a book, which is called Reflections on the Nature of Friendship. And I was really concerned that if people can't see each other, they can't visit, they can't visit an uh, unwell relative in a hospital or a friend in a hospital, they can't go out to a movie together. There, there were so many throwdowns about what could not be done that I was really worried about the the, 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 the unknitting of the social fabric. This book is really a, a study on the impact of COVID on friendship, which is one special form of relationship, and also the uh, almost universal need for friendship and how we can work to uh, create deeper and more meaningful friendships, how we can work through conflict. Um, I put in three case studies about friendship that I have, and the challenges and struggles and the joys uh, so that people can look to those case studies as opportunities to reflect on their own friendships. Uh, but I, I did it in a way so that I, we could keep the whole issue of friendship and social connection front and center uh, during a time where, of course, the physical and medical and physiological concerns were first and foremost. Uh, my training tells me that there's not that much of a separation between the mental and the emotional and the physical. And so that book comes from that. And I've I've had the opportunity to present my findings and and my research and my learnings from the book. And I will be doing so 
uh, next week at the John Zahn Center toward the end of July. And, um, you know, I, I think that having these discussions is another way of rebuilding the fabric uh, of, the, of the community that has been challenged by uh, the difficulties with COVID. Well, that makes, that makes me feel a lot better that you are the head of the Greenfield Human Rights Commission, because it <laughs> seems like you, you, you're the right person for the right position, and I'm glad you're involved in that, all of that. Well, thank you so much for coming on Panorama, uh, talking all things Greenfield, sharing your personal stories as well. Uh, I learned a lot. Uh, I wish you the best of luck. I hope you do end up working with the Greenfield City Council and the mayor's office more closely, try to build that conversation, dialogue, and actually enact social change that is the reason why you exist and uh, to bring about uh, difficult conversations and dialogues, but that is happening on the ground in Greenfield and it can't be ignored. So thank you so much for all of that. Thank you, Dan. It's it's been a great opportunity to really work through some of the challenges and the conflicts and also make it known to folks that there is a human rights commission in Greenfield and we're determined to be a part of the solution uh, at every level. And uh, we want people to know that and to reach out to us uh, in any ways that they can. So thank you for the time. That's Daniel Cantor Yalowitz here on Panorama, the chair of the Greenfield Human Rights Commission. Go visit the website, log in if you have the opportunity and time to, to read what they're doing, uh, the great stuff they're, they're working on in Greenfield. Um, and we'll be back next week here on Panorama.